You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I'm your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined as always by my excellent co-host, Molly and Dr. Obbs. How are you today, guys? Doing good, Bryson. This has been a really long break. It feels like I've been wandering in the desert for 40 years up until this point, but I'm ready for racing next week. How about you, Molly? I'm doing the best I can. If you can't tell, I have picked up and brought home the Paddock Plague from MotoGP. I attended the Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas last weekend and had an absolute fantastic experience, but came home with a little bit of a cold. So I am trying to nurse myself back to health and get ready for the racing to pick back up again. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of rounding out the end of this F1 spring break, as we're calling it. We're about to get started doing some more racing, but we still have a lot to look forward to the entire rest of the season. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of technical developments coming up. There's really no better person in the F1 space to talk to than our invited guest for this week's episode. I'd like to welcome back to the studio, Craig Scarborough. How's it going today, Craig? Yeah, thank you for inviting me back. It's uh, it's nice to be back with you guys. Yeah, it has been a long time since the last race. And uh, I think when we look back, we've only had three races so far. It's like, it feels like we're so deep into the season. So yeah, definitely looking forward to Baku coming up. Yeah, I think all of us are. And you know, you were the second repeat guest of the podcast, so we're very glad to have you back on. We were unfortunately unable to ask you one of the key questions from the last time you were a guest, which was actually related to wheel guns and the possible introduction of electric wheel guns. I just was wondering what your thoughts were on the introduction of electric wheel guns potentially in the next couple of seasons. We've also seen several teams using LED lights on the wheel guns to help them with their operations. We know this is all going towards the net zero 2030 objective that F1 has, but just curious as to what your thoughts are on some of these changes coming down the line. Yeah, well, the the electric wheel guns is uh, something that's going to be coming up uh, over the next few years, as I understand it for Formula One. It's, as you say, it's not a performance thing. It's not to speed up or slow down pit stops, but to reduce the amount of generators and compressors that are running constantly up and down the pit lane and on the grid before the race. And the FA, in order to reach net zero, want to get rid of all of those types of bits of kit so everything will be uh, electric up and down the pit lane and the paddock and electric wheel guns i mean i don't have a, a big issue plus or minus for them really i think it's a, it's a good step in a good direction and uh, as we've seen and as you mentioned the uh, the led lights letting the uh, mechanics and and us fans know what's going on with the wheel gun that it's either tightening it's torqued it's not torqued or it's reversed uh flashing up during pit stops just adds to our enjoyment of exactly what's going on during those pit stops in the race looking forward uh, to more night races where we see them even more so flashing in the pit lane yeah i remember red bull did one of their stunts where they had a car that was in one of the you know, airplanes that was doing parabolic trajectories and they had a car in the back of the airplane and had guys doing a pit stop with electric you know wireless guns and i was just concerned that they didn't have enough torque but it seems like they do have enough torque and i'm excited to see that come through yeah isn't f2 using electric wheel guns this season or they're they're moving to electric wheel guns next year yeah i think that's correct i think that's correct is that your understanding as well 
Yeah, I believe that's true. Yes, yes, I understand. I mean, I must say, I haven't watched any of the F2, but uh, I, I remember being told that they were going to uh, run to them so that they're not bringing generators again into the pit lane during uh, their sessions. Very good, very good. Well, uh, just in more general strokes, did you have any thoughts on what your biggest surprise was on the grid regarding sort of technical development so far, kind of from 2022 as well, but primarily this season in 2023? I mean, I think the main thing has been just that the breadth of different designs with respect to how they're working the floor uh, and how they're working the overbody airflow, particularly with the side pots, as we've probably discussed time and time again. I don't think there was anything aside from that that really kind of caught my eye and I thought was like, wow, I really didn't see any of that coming. Everything else seems to be by and large pretty much as you would expect it. I think the biggest surprises really have been in the way that teams have tackled this and those that have made a success. And you would say this year, Aston Martin have to be the uh, the winners, maybe perhaps slightly behind Red Bull, but uh, I think they've made the biggest jump. Uh, and equally, how some teams can continue to get it wrong two years on the bounce. You know, Ferrari and Mercedes, I think you would have to put into that group. How can they have recovered through last year with various problems and yet still underperform in 2023. For me, that's the biggest surprise. Uh, and it's less about the design of the cars and more about how the teams are approaching these seasons. I was going to say, I think one thing that was quite surprising to me is when we found out that the sort of um, slot gap separators with the turning veins in essence were going to be legal, I thought we would see them up and down the grid, honestly. When I saw them on the Ferrari and then there was a bit of explanation that, okay, now it's it's legal, I thought, okay, everybody's turning up to the first race with these things. And we haven't seen them, which maybe does go to show that it was kind of a marginal sort of improvement or something that was potentially there, but other teams haven't been able to find a lot of pace with it. No, I agree. I mean, I think it's one of those things. I was surprised they came back at all. I didn't read the regulations very closely around them, but uh, Ferrari seemed to have maximized what you can do. And it's a small game. And if you think of all the other things the teams must have queued up already in their CFD and wind tunnel and getting ready for production for this kind of next phase of the season, then uh, I don't think that would be the top of their list of of things to do. I think we will see teams play with them as we go through the year, but I don't think it's anything that anyone would necessarily need to jump on really quickly to find performance. I think they've all got their potential in other areas. Yeah, so maybe that's a good point to step right into our next question there, Scarbs. You had already mentioned developments in the floor areas and things like that. And we know that this year we did have a change to the regulations that now increases the diffuser throw height and also increases increases the floor edge, which really isn't a linear translation as many people think. It's a bit on an angle. What are you seeing? What are you hearing in terms of how teams were able to manage that over the winter and, and find pace this year? I mean, I I think most teams have said that it hasn't really been a big issue for them. I think the exception to that were McLaren, who clearly felt that that was working really against their their concept. And I can't honestly understand exactly how they are different to anybody else up and down the grid. I think the the floor changes have been, in terms of effect on the teams, have been fairly minimal in terms of performance. Certainly, we're not seeing that, you know, porpoising or issues with cars grounding excessively through corners as much as perhaps you would have expected. 
So I think you know, those changes have been quite small. I think what really has happened is that the teams have had their sort of second big opportunity to reinvent their floors for 2023. And I think that's really where the biggest differences come about rather than, um, you know, these, these uh, kind of fairly minor floor changes. And uh, again, you know, we're finding different teams at different levels of kind of complexity and maturity in their floors. You have uh, some teams which have got very complicated floor edges and, you know, quite sophisticated shapes to the inlet fences and to the, uh, the features uh, around the back of the diffuser, particularly with a little mouse hole there by the rear tire. But then you get some teams which are running really basic floors. And we think, you know, amongst those, you'd have to kind of count Aston Martin, who have, you know, a really immature looking floor edge, but are getting a massive amount of performance out of it. But I think that is all kind of uh, tempered by how teams are now using their suspension to manage the ride height, particularly at very, very low, low ride heights. And I think that's really where we're kind of seeing the haves and the have-nots here. Uh, you know, clearly Red Bull, Aston Martin, and you have to say Ferrari to an extent, really have got their suspension worked out quite well, that it's given them the flexibility to run over curbs, to still get a bit of roll and pitch in the car when they need it, but equally to run quite close to the ground. And then the other teams seem to be really kind of struggling with this concept. And, you know, one of those you'd have to say would be Mercedes that are running almost like an off-roader <laughs> compared <laughs> to the Red Bull by running, you know, quite so much ride height. I mean, they say it's 10 millimetres, but to my eyes, it looks, it looks far more uh, in difference between the two cars. Yeah, and I think that that's actually a great segue into the question I was going to ask too, is we're seeing so many teams starting to shift their attention towards rear suspension. Is that ride height and wanting to run so low a contributor to that? Or why are we seeing so much attention being placed on rear suspension? Well, I mean, it, it's front and rear. Um, the rear has got more movement and probably because of the way that the, the back of the, the, the floor and the diffuser around the kind of the throat area, that sort of kick line, uh, is much more influential by being controlled by the rear suspension. And I think teams are also getting to grips with the big rule change that came last year where the suspension was simplified in lots and lots of different ways. They really only can run relatively conventional springs, be it whether they're you know cold springs or uh, torsion bars or even carbon disc springs. Uh, and just trying to understand the rising rate that you get with the floor and how that affects the floor's uh, ride height at particularly low ride heights when you want the suspension to start get to get quite stiff, but not at the same time make the car too jumpy so that you start to get big aero balance shift, which was really was one of the biggest issues for all of the teams last year that led to as much of the porpoising as the aero changes did. So I think teams are starting to understand how they can get a different level of progression into that suspension within these regulations now that all of their clever tricks have been taken away. And even in the limited views that we saw of the suspension in teams last year, you could see that Ferrari and Red Bull had a lot of different elements in there. And they certainly had dual rate elements in the suspension setup, both in pitch and roll, which you didn't see in other teams, even in other teams that were using the same effectively rear end as the you know, those two manufacturers would have. So, you know, there is a big difference uh, between the teams in this area. And I think it's an area where we're never really going to know how much is going on. But I would imagine there's almost as many gains over the winter and through this year in that area as you'll get actually from the aero surfaces. 
It's so amazing because we always say that Arrow is king in Formula One. Arrow is the most important thing. But given that we lost so many of the tools and tricks, as you mentioned before, with the suspension, your ability to actually control the ride height and pitch and roll and to be able to ride the curves, but also have a, a good platform for the Arrow to work is just as important. I mean, it seems secondary, but it, it's just as first order as, as anything else, which is really quite impressive. So let's kind of get back into it. There's been a lot of discussion. And in fact, you know, you had a really nice thread on the topic of Red Bull's alleged triple DRS setup, where the hypothesis was that by the interaction of the rear wing and the beam wing and the diffuser, that the activation of the of the DRS was able to, by aero communication, stall the beam wing, which in effect stalled the floor as well, which is able to dump a lot of drag hypothetically in a situation where the DRS is activated. There's been a lot of discussion about that and not a lot of confirmation, I'll say. There's some data out there that seems to suggest that Ha also has a very high top speed as well and a very high DRS delta. I was just wondering if you've had any any recent thoughts on this discussion of triple DRS with Red Bull. If you think there actually is some very clever arrow thing that they're doing to gain this top speed or if it's just a, a one package all working together very seamlessly. I think the thing that surprised me about this topic has been just how much people have jumped on this triple DRS concept as though it's something wild and new that's never been used in Formula One and Red Bull have found another secret. DRS uh, and any means of stalling the the rear wing um, through perhaps less uh, legal routes has always been to completely break down the cascade of elements from the top rear wing to the beam wing when, when it's been legal and that the diffuser below, this is this is nothing new and it's something that teams have done, well, probably for decades, I think it would be fair to say. So the whole concept is nothing new. I think there is now some evidence that shows, you know, Rebel do have quite a big DRS delta. I must say, I've not drilled into it too closely. I've been <laughs> looking, looking at some other things, but yeah, there is something there. And I don't think this is something Rebel have kind of gone out of their way to produce in the car, but I think it's a result of the car concept that they've got, that the underfloor is working so well. And particularly this year, I mean, you can see it, the car's literally right on the floor, almost like it's sucked to the ground, which yeah, I suppose technically it, it actually is. But what that means is you have much less emphasis on the beam wing and the rear wing to provide you with downfall. So therefore, you can then play with them to make them work slightly better so that they are very highly loaded, very sensitive to a change in airflow. And Red Bull don't have a conventional double element beam wing, if you remember, they have this kind of two separate biplane setup. So you can make that lower one that's working with the diffuser to be you know, right on the edge of stalling and separation. And when you hit DRS, you know that can stall as well. Uh, other teams are looking for downforce in that area and they can't afford to have something so sensitive. So they would run a conventional two element beam wing. And the same with the, with the top rear wing, you know, Red Bull don't need to work with the area outside of the DRS flap to create downforce like you would see, for example, with the Mercedes, which has you know quite a lot of bodywork outboard of the DRS flap, and that's all creating downforce. So even when you have DRS open, they will still be having you know a drag effect in the airflow there. Uh, Red Bull doesn't need them. So when you open DRS, you literally lose that rear wing and you lose everything else in the cascade, giving the car the reduction in induced drag that all of those parts create. And I think it's just that. I don't think it's something that they kind of, you know, made a key part of the initial car concept. It's just, a, you know, a, a, an added benefit of the car working well generally. So I don't think people need to get too hung up on that. And, uh, you know, other teams could go in that direction if that's what they felt was, was a solution. But they've got to get the rest of the car working properly first. 
Yeah, it reminds me very much of 2021 when Mercedes had that collapsible rear suspension that they were using to be able to stall the diffuser to gain some more top speed. The thing that always stuck out to me about that was you have to be able to tune it. You have to be able to tune it so that it only gives you that stalling in the straight line at the highest speed. It's not giving you a problem, you know, mid corner. So even whatever solution the team seems to have come up with, there has to be an element of track-to-track tuning as well to make sure that you don't lose your downforce mid-corner, which is something that is a particularly spectacular failure mode, <laughs> if I had to if I had to describe it. Yeah, so speaking of what's going on with Red Bull's DRS and aerodynamic theories and things like that, one thing that we don't really have to guess too much about is the, the chaotic nature of the red flag restarts from Australia. <laughs> you know, we are a technical podcast, and I think there's some technical aspects to this that we that we could discuss here. So we really want to get your take on this, Scarbs. We know that eventually Formula One is trying to get rid of tire heating blankets, and there's the whole topic of can you fire these new tires up quickly enough to allow you to have enough traction? And especially when we talk about red flag restarts on low fuel at the end of a race, where are your, where are your thoughts on this? Are, can, could we possibly see in the future some changes to the red flag rules? And I'm even talking about including allowing people to change their tires during red flag. We saw George Russell was quite negatively impacted by this. It's happened in the past as well. We don't need to bring up what happened in 2021. But at the end of the day, there's some things that need to be changed potentially with the red flags. This could also be related to the tire compounds and the firing up of the tire compounds. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, there's there's very aspect, uh, different aspects of the question there, isn't there? I think, uh, I mean, I followed Formula One for, for many, many years now. And what the FAA or the, the race directors do during the race uh, when there's a red flag, how do they restart it? Do they, you know, have a rolling restart, a safety car restart, a, a red light uh, restart? And there's always been different views of which one should be done, either erring on the safety side or erring on the entertainment side. Personally, I don't mind. I don't mind either way. I just it could all be consistent from race to race and we're not all trying to guess what they're going to do are they going to you know have uh, a grid restart or are we going to you know see them behind the safety car let's just make a decision and in, enforce it on a regular a proper basis um equally you know all this question about you know should races finish behind safety cars well yes if that's what has to be done to be safe but if they can get the the, the race started safely uh, then they should do so, uh, but they shouldn't cut corners. Again, I think we're going into a couple of years ago here. And I don't want to get into that. You know, it, it's an area that just really needs to be much stricter enforced and much more consistent. And it's been horrifically inconsistent for, for many years. I mean, this isn't a recent thing. This isn't a liberty. Let's make the you know, market Formula One better. It goes back to the Bernie era and before that as well. So I think that's something, you know, generally the sport and regulations need to be worked out much, much better than they are. The question of losing tire warmers, which I am in favor of. I see no reason that the, you know, 20 of the best drivers in the world could not cope with driving a car on tires, which have been designed to start from lower temperatures, uh, which is what Pirelli are doing. We've seen that, you know, increasing over the past couple of years. I'm not quite sure if it will be enforced in 2024 or if it gets pushed back a bit further. But, you know, it's, you know, that the throttle works both ways, doesn't it? You know, we can't say that these cars are unsafe without uh, hot tires. The drivers just need to understand how you drive. I mean, if it suddenly starts raining, when <laughs> you know the drivers have to back off, and if they're on cold tires, they have to back off, and they have to learn how to warm the tires up quickly, cope with the car when you've got the cold tires, 
uh, and that's you know that's just part of a driver's skill it's been there you know ever since motor racing started and if you look at every other category of motorsport you know tire warmers are a thing of the past so formula one shouldn't see itself as any kind of special precedent that they must have these but i think it does need to be introduced properly with you know regulations as you say with the red flag that need to take that into account and you know tires which have been designed to work from lower temperatures uh, which is something that Pirelli are working on. Yeah I was gonna throw out Mark Urban actually threw out a really cool red flag stat online that from 2000 to 2019 in Formula One there were only 17 total races with red flags but from the 2020 Italian Grand Prix of the middle of the 2020 season on to present day there's been 13 races with red flags three of which have had multiple red flags which was a fascinating red flag statistic that I, I want to dig more into later but I thought it was kind of in the thread of what you were talking out with red flag application scarves and, and how hopefully we're seeing it consistent and, and used more appropriately as it should going forward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the FIA have been, certainly race direction has now become a much more risk averse and will be happier to pull a red flag or run under virtual safety cars in whereas in situations in the past, they would probably let the cars run past a stranded car, for example. And I, again, I don't have an issue with lots of red flags. You know, I know it does break up the racing for us fans. And you know, there are winners and losers sometimes and red flags. But, you know, Formula One is all about jeopardy, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. you just never know what's going to happen next. And the red flag, red flag is part of that. What I don't want to see is anyone on track, whether it be a driver or a marshal or uh, people in the crowd being hurt because we weren't being careful. And I think Formula One does need to bear that in mind above every other factor, be it, you know, losing fans losing TV time, making the race run longer or finish under a safety flag. I don't care about that. It's yeah, the, the first things first is it we must ensure the safety of people at the track. I agree completely with you, Scarbs. I mean, I was I was watching the 2004 USGP at Indianapolis for some research that I was doing. And after Ralph Schumacher's, you know, big crash in that final corner, the car was crashed in the middle of the circuit. The driver was unconscious. There was debris all over the track. And eventually there was a, an ambulance on the circuit to, to extract him. And they were still running through behind the safety car multiple laps past the accident they, they didn't even go through the pit lane which was the most logical thing to do so there has to be some kind of middle ground that we can find between throwing too many red flags and then not throwing nearly enough you know red flags so i completely agree with you that the paramount consideration is marshal safety and driver safety and as long as that's the most important thing how you go about doing that is is kind of your own question so i'm i'm totally on on board with that you know we were just thinking about looking forward a little bit into the the next part of the season, the rest of this year, and then in preparation for the next season, based on your experience and what you've learned about the season so far, what were some of your thoughts on emerging areas where you think teams might want to focus their upgrades for the rest of the 2023 season and beyond? We've obviously talked about some of the suspension changes that teams have coming, maybe some of them even trying to more replicate what Red Bull is doing with their anti-dive front and anti-squat rear. But was there anything else coming down the pipeline that you may have heard anything about? About that teams might be working on in the future? Well, I mean, for the balance of the year, you know, really everything this year is going to be about working the underfloor. So it will be, as you said, as we sort of said already, you know, stuff that you don't see like suspension. Also, sadly, stuff that we don't see, the shape of the underfloor and all the little features uh, along it. I think the thing that we will get to enjoy will be looking at the change in the floor edge, which has been a real uh, rich area of visible development. It's really allowed us to kind of have a look at those areas. 
I think the thing that struck me over the past year is uh, how much rear wing development is going on, how these kind of very quite modular rear wings are being trimmed and added to to change the, the drag versus downforce levels for them for different circuits, which, again, I think we will continually see. I don't think there is a big area of uh, I'm expecting of uh, any other areas that they'll play with. Of course, they'll, you know, small uh, reduce the size of cooling outlets and bits and pieces like that, which is just a part of natural development and add a few you know, wings and widgets here and there. But I don't think there's anything that's really kind of caught our eye as a must have development. I know there are some 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 bits and pieces that have been hidden away on, on a few cars that we're kind of waiting for evidence to see if they've got some clever tricks uh, hidden away. Uh, I mean, you know, for example, pre-season, we were talking about Ferrari in the S-Duct and uh, in the side pods, but we've never actually seen any evidence that that is what it is at all. Uh, <laughs> after three races, there's no photographs that really prove it one way or the other, which is kind of quite surprising. And I think there's some scope for tweaks on the front wing, um, which I think we will be talking about when we get to mid-season. And uh, yeah, I expect quite a few arguments coming up around um, some flexi front wings, because uh, I think that is an area where teams are learning quite a lot at the moment to play around with. And, you know, again, it would be so easy for the FA to be able to clamp down on this, but, you know, the Persistently every year, they allow front wing flexing in a way that I think shouldn't be allowed and would be quite easily uh, prevented. So they're, they're probably the key areas that I expect to see. Just really briefly, I think all of us are, are waiting to see these wonderful shots of the under part of the floor with a car being lifted up on a crane. And we haven't we haven't quite seen it yet. We've had a fair bit of carnage, I suppose, in some of the races, but we still haven't had the consequence of that, of actually seeing the, the full underfloor of the cars in the same way that we did. I'm thinking back to Monaco last year. We got some fantastic shots of the McLaren underfloor. So I'm still, fingers are still crossed. We're still hoping that I mean, I don't want anyone to get hurt. Please don't let me be misunderstood. But if there's some sort of, you know, stoppage on track that requires a car to be lifted up, it would be really exciting to actually see some more details about the floors. Because as you say, it's the most important part of these current cars and teams have made developments over the over the offseason. So I think one of the things that happens in a Formula One season is we have a long summer break, which we call the silly season. And this year, in between the uh, Australian uh, Grand Prix and the race in Baku, we've had quite a lot of time. So there's been a lot of rumors floating around. I think at one point there was Adrian Newey was going to retire eventually and go someplace else. And now there was some rumors floating around about what was Mercedes going to do organizationally to change things. We now have confirmation. Mike Elliott is moving out of his previous role that he was in as technical director, and James Allison is taking over again. What can we expect from Mercedes now that you've got James Allison? And maybe just a just a follow-up question to that. How different is it when you have one technical director with one style, and then maybe you bring in another technical director with a different style? How disruptive is that to a team? Well, yes. I mean, it has been a, a busy a uh, little break, uh, Easter break, I guess we would call it uh, <laughs> over here. Um, and yes, you know, we have James Key has uh, been lost from McLaren, which is um, a bit of a head scratcher for me. I didn't, I didn't expect that. Equally, I didn't expect the the promotion of Pete Prod to uh, kind of step into those shoes, even though they're not going to run with a kind of a de facto technical director. Uh, you know, which leaves James Key floating around, and then as you say, Mercedes as well. So yeah, the Mercedes move is quite. It was. I think it has been long expected. There, you know, there was no surprise for anyone that Mike Elliott was going to uh, have to shift his position to somewhere else. And I think Mercedes have done that in a very kind way. Uh, that's not to say that I think that he is necessarily culpable for any of the problems that they've had over these past two years. But you know, there, 
something has changed in the way that they perform as a technical team. And, you know, James Allison, who is a kind of a university accepted ILD uh, technical director, he's you know, a fantastic aerodynamicist. He's you know a great orator. He's a great leader. And um, you know, I, I can remember when he was uh, just head of aero at, at Renault many many years back, sort of chatting to him. And you know, he, even then, he sort of stood out as someone that you felt was going to be one of those people that stepped up and clearly has done. Uh, how disruptive it is? I mean, yes. I mean, it can be massively disruptive. You know, I mean, it really depends because. You know, you can have a, a technical director that maybe the technical team hates or just find it hard to work under. Uh, and I can't think of a current situation like that, but it you know, it has happened in the past. And, you know, then you have ones which are, you know, are good and then ones which are brilliant. You know, losing someone like James Allison into other areas of the, uh, the Mercedes portfolio is a big loss to the team. You know, it's someone that everyone, you know, can respect and rely on their judgment. And for him coming back, I think it will be only beneficial. I can't see how there will be any, any downsides to it. He's previously led, directly led the technical team there at Brackley. So I think that will only be a good thing. The only question, as I understand it, he's not coming in to manage the 2023 season. He's coming in to look towards the 2024 car. So... It's great, but I don't think for Mercedes fans, this is, you know, maybe the silver bullet that everyone would like that, you know, someone's going to come in and shake the W14 car up and make it a race winner within, you know, a few months. I don't think that is what's going to happen. Uh, I think Mercedes have got a plan. They've got updates coming over the next few races. There's all sorts of talk about how they're going to change the car, where they're going to change the car, how much will it change? And yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know how much of that all is true, but I certainly think that they have made a good decision at this point to play around with the, the technical heads uh, in order to get back on track in the longer term. So our next question, Scarves, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know this or maybe they do, that you are a big motorcycle guy and a big motorcycle tech guy. And I obviously recently just came back from MotoGP and had a fantastic time, just kind of eyes open, ears open, asking lots of questions and, and taking it in and experiencing the MotoGP paddock and all of the tech that there is to offer in that series because there's a lot of really, really cool stuff going on. Have you kept an eye on any of the MotoGP tech that's kind of coming up out of that series right now and some of the developing storylines? I know I'm keeping an eye on the kind of all-out arrow war that we've devolved into, but what's caught your eye over in that series? Yes, I have. I mean, I've I've been into MotoGP for for many years, and back going back to the days when it wasn't called MotoGP, it was just Grand Prix bike racing. And yet, you know, from a teenager, I followed the technology, you know, with frames and engines, and you know, aerodynamics has been a factor. But you know, certainly we're into a you know, a, a specific era of the category where both the the suspension. And the aerodynamics have suddenly become a big part of the technology being used. Uh, you know, you have the, the whole shot device, the shape shifters, which, uh, you know, I find really hard to understand how the riders can actually use that gadget, you know, during a race to get drive out of corners. It, it's fascinating, but the aero is for me a little bit easier to understand. And, you know, led by Ducati and followed up very quickly by, uh, you know, particularly KTM, but, uh, mainly by Aprilia, really using aerodynamics in a way that's gone away from the old sort of uh, you know reduced drag uh, reduced lift to actually trying to create downforce to get these bikes to work you know these are 
massively powerful, incredibly light bikes, working to use these bikes with downforce. You know, for long, many years, it's just been a case of that the the rider's weight being able to uh, manage the contact patch pressures. Uh, And now they're using aerodynamics and, you know, reducing wheeling, but also giving you stability going into corners with, you know, front wings on the nose and, um, you know, drag reducing fairings around the wheels. We've got the ground effect on the lower fairings uh, on the cut bikes now, which is, for me, fascinating to understand and how that works yeah. uh, and it's sort of equally very hard to explain how it works once you've worked it out because it, it's kind of under the bike as it's lens over it's very hard for me to draw it or do a cutaway to show what's going on and the back end of last year you started to see the uh, the winglets on the tail fairings as well on the back of the seats which you know some of them look like they would have come off at the back of a Formula One car just a few years ago as a, a monkey seat uh, so it's fascinating that they've started to adopt you know all these different technologies successfully because you know, obviously people have been trying aerodynamics on bikes for many years and you know the results have always failed but now they're working uh, in a way that's uh, you know changing the, the literally the shape and the way that the moto gp racing goes on yeah i was in grassini's garage for a portion of the weekend and and caught the they ride ducati bikes and caught the ducati at the right angle and i was like wow that aerodynamics makes so much more sense and you could really see all of the intricacies and all of the subtle little pieces and the corners and the edges that really made it make a little bit more sense to me it was like wow that that just that tiny little kind of kick out there probably has a huge gain and i think it's it's a series that is fascinating from a technical standpoint and we're even seeing you're talking about the importance of aerodynamics former f1 arrows coming over to ducati and uh, aprilia too i believe to actually help kind of develop the aerodynamics in this series yeah, I mean, the cross-pollination is, you know, has kind of always been there. I know John Barnard worked with Kenny Roberts' team for a while, but Ducati hired uh, Alan Jenkins, who was the ex-sort of Arrow Stewart, uh, I mean, who kind of worked with everyone uh, and has really led the aerodynamic charge in MotoGP. But equally, uh, Ducati hired uh, Dr. Rob Tolui, who was the suspension designer that's created the salad box on the back of the Ducati. You know, it's a, a mass damper inerter. We've never quite seen the details of it. I think I understand how it works. Uh, anti-chatter device. And that's the same engineer that in Formula One at Renault introduced the mass damper and Frick and the uh, gas uh, springs, which Mercedes have been running so successfully up until just a few years ago. So there are some key engineers going in between these categories, which um, is fascinating. I know that the podcast is called the Tech Heads F1 Podcast, and it is principally about F1, but we are fans of motorsport in general, and we're hoping to add other series involved in some of the discussions that we're having, MotoGP, IndyCar, IMSA, you know, WEC. All these things are related, and they're they're interesting, so we're hoping to dig into that a little bit more as time goes on. We do have quite a few listener questions for you. Mm -hmm. People were were quite interested to get you back on the podcast to get your, your takes on a few things. Our first one comes from Clarkson with an inordinate number of ends, <laughs> but uh, a gentleman named Clarkson who asks, you know, what's your favorite piece of F1 memorabilia in your collection? Your collection is quite extensive. We've seen <laughs> yes. bits and, 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 and snippets of it. So, you know, it's quite, quite extensive, but no, what is, what is actually your, your favorite piece that you happen to have? Um, that's hard to answer. I, I'm not someone that has favorites. You know, I don't have a favorite driver, team, color, song or anything. Uh, my, my recent, most recent thing was uh, the nose off of one of the Leighton House marches, albeit a crash nose. And it's a car that I've loved for, you know, for years and years in terms of its design. So it's lovely to get a piece of that. I think something that's quite unique in my collection, I've got a Red Bull F-duct 
from Valencia of that year. And I love that for several reasons. One, because I can, I've actually attached hair dryers to it and it works. <laughs> which is seriously cool to play with. But equally, I bought it very cheap because someone just thought it was a radiator duct. But it is a very cool piece. It's actually in the F1 exhibition at the moment on show in Madrid. So uh, I haven't got that to play around with. The next question comes from at NRNF1. And it's two questions and I'll, I'll group them together because they're both about sustainability. I think recently we also heard, I think it was from Eric Van Heren mentioned on Twitter that uh, F1 is finally looking at a sustainable calendar. So I guess there's a question about that. Like what can we potentially expect in the future on sustainable calendar, sustainable race schedule? But the really interesting question here from them is why doesn't F1 use sustainable materials like recycling carbon, fiber and things like that. It seems like there could be an opportunity for, you know, more sustainability within the motorsport categories, not just Formula One, all motorsport categories. Actually, it would help reduce costs of manufacturing and things like that as well. What, what is actually out there and in, in terms of recycling components for sustainability? Uh, well, I mean, it's um, it's an interesting question. Yeah, Formula One is doing quite well, it seems, on you know, kind of reaching net zero and looking at, um, you know, a certainly a sustainable calendar has some great uh, environmental benefits that you would have maybe an Asian series, an American series, and, you know, a European series, and you kind of keep in a region for a period, maybe commercially not so good, because obviously, if you've just been to the New York Grand Prix, and then you go to the Miami Grand Prix, and then the Texas Grand Prix, and the Las Vegas Grand Prix, you're kind of robbing fans and ticket buyers from each other. So there, there is an issue there. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a marketing man. But uh, I think we do need to think about this a lot better. Uh, and how the sport moves itself around the world. In terms of sustainability with the cars themselves, uh, well, there, there's kind of two factors to that because really, if you think about, you know, the materials a Formula One car is made of, you know, you have the metals which are quite easily recyclable and certainly there's not a lot of the metal parts that would be kept intact. So like a lot of the engines will be, you know, recycled because they don't want to keep a huge stock of engines lying around for uh, people to get their BDIs on and understand their secrets. But again, the other half of the car is mainly only made from carbon fiber. Carbon fiber typically isn't recyclable in any useful way. You can grind carbon fiber down and use it as a filler, but really, I mean, it's, it, it loses all of its benefits there. There are some industrial and commercially available ways that you can actually recover um, long strands of carbon fiber from, you know, from structures. I don't think Formula One cars probably are suited to something like that. That's much more for things like aircraft wings and wind turbines. But um, it's yeah, certainly it's an interesting process that I've seen. It's um, it's some produced by ProDrive, who I do some work for, which is absolutely fascinating. You can actually, from a carbon fiber component, you can actually recycle the fibers two or three times, which is you know quite a gain. But then you then start to think about what are sustainable alternatives to carbon fiber, because if you bury carbon fiber, it stays in the ground forever. You know, it doesn't really uh, degrade. In at any rate that you would um, think that was uh, sustainable. Um, and there is a solution. There is natural fibers which can be used instead of carbon fiber in certain circumstances. So you have things like flax and hemp as well. Various companies are using that. It's already exist in Formula One. The front of the wings are made from it. And the benefit of this, it's basically using grass rather than carbon fibers. And it means that when you have an accident, you don't have the sharp shards, which is why they put it in the front of the wings. And you get it in lots of other categories like GT racing and um, Formula E, uh, lots of uh, the other categories like that. 
It also has the benefit that it has better vibration qualities, which is good for body work, which is what it typically gets used for because it gets damaged so often. In terms of strength, it's a lower modulus product than most carbon fibers. But for the sort of carbon that you would use for body work, for example, it's perfectly usable. The weight isn't massively different between the two. And the benefit that you know eventually that will decompose because it's grass and you obviously got the carbon locked in because it is you know a natural uh, component. So that those options are out there, but teams currently aren't using that for large body panels. Maybe regulations could be allowed to enforce that, which wouldn't be difficult to do. Certainly, wouldn't be any detriment. Adds maybe adds a small amount of weight, which we are trying to avoid in Formula One at the moment. But overall, it's you know, it is a good option. So there are there are. You know, options out there and Formula One seems to be thinking about all of these sorts of things now in a very considered and constructive way. So I think we will get you know, a bit further down the sustainability path than you know maybe we have in the past. I think certainly things are looking that direction. Yeah, I think all of us are very much looking forward to improving the sustainability profile of the sport. Logistics and business travel is a huge part of it, but also just being an example of using recyclable and sustainable materials is going to be an excellent development in Formula One. We know Super Formula in Japan has done a lot of that with their most recent car. Moving on to the next question is actually from Matt Vaughn. And his question was, does Scarb see Aston Martin using Honda's engines, given that the main brand itself uses AMG, aka Mercedes engines in their road cars? Also, could Aston Martin pose an actual threat to Red Bull itself in the latter half of the season, given that they have substantially more wind tunnel time? Thoughts on that? Great questions in there. Yes, it, there's there's a lot to consider there, isn't there? Honda are, are floating around as a potential power unit supplier, and you know, given the performance of that power unit, I think there's lots of teams that would be interested. McLaren certainly are interested, who also produce their own road car engines. You know, there is you know, you would see that there was a conflict of interest, and the same with Aston Martin, as you, you know, as you say, they no longer produce their own engines; they use Mercedes AMG units, but. When it comes to Formula One, some of those commercial factors can be forgotten and you can, you know, go and use somebody else's power unit, whether it's badged as Honda, HRC or, you know, something else entirely. I think that's all up for grabs. And certainly if they did get hold of um, that power unit, I think they would be just as successful. I don't think the Honda is especially that much better than the Mercedes they're running at the moment, but perhaps the, the treatment and their ability to tailor the power unit in its performance and its packaging and shape and everything could be useful to them and could gain them some performance uh, in the car that way. So yeah, so that is interesting. I could see that happening. I see nothing uh, commercially preventing that from happening because you know, Large Stroll wants their team to be sort of super successful. So we'll just have to kind of keep an eye out for that one. In terms of Aston Martin, therefore, their performance this year has been a surprise. And as I've said earlier, that I think that car's got a lot more performance to come from it as they really start to develop it. It's still in a very early age of development compared with a lot of the other cars, and particularly with the Red Bull. And then, as you say, with the extra wind tunnel time and with Red Bull thinking about having to reduce their development this year to think about 2024, I wouldn't be surprised to see teams challenging Red Bull in the second half of this year. I think, you know, potentially Aston Martin could be. Uh, challenging them for a win if all the circumstances are right actually before that but I certainly think that Aston Martin have got a chance certainly I believe that Mercedes have got a chance towards the end of the season to challenge uh, Red Bull on you know sheer performance particularly in the race itself uh, Ferrari I, I may be less confident of but um, you can never really predict how they develop through a season they don't have a great track record of actually 
pulling success out of a season that started uh, not as well as they hoped. But again, we're not quite clear what Ferrari's base problems are, if it's something that can be cured quite quickly and get lots more performance out of that car. So our next listener question comes from Rhett B. Jackson, and I, I love these kinds of questions. If you had the power to change one rule in Formula One, what would it be and why? And this can go for scarves in any of the tech heads. Uh, yeah, I looked at this one and I've been puzzling because I it depends how radical you want to go. I mean, to be honest, if it was me, I would change the 2026 regulations to have an even smaller combustion engine and electric final drive so that you know the, the you don't have a gearbox differential you have a motor and the you know you can have the combustion engine either charging it or connected with some kind of clutch or uh setup that will allow it to drive the uh, the final drive as well that would probably be my if I was king and I was you know maybe a, a maniacal leader if not the more simple one is I would give a driver maybe only 12 activations of DRS for the entire Grand Prix weekend. And if you use them, you use them. And if you use them for each of your qualifying sessions, it's less than you get in the race. And I just think that would just level up this kind of this DRS train that we get. And equally, you know, someone that's caught the leader, but isn't really quick enough to overtake having an opportunity lap after lap after lap to be able to make that DRS move, which I think takes away some of the shine from, you know, taking the lead or taking a position. So that maybe would be the one that would be more likely for me to be uh, enacted. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea, honestly, because we have heard so much about this question of DRS trains and how do we solve this question. I mean, my own thought was to actually have a, a two-sided DRS window where not only do you have to be within one second to activate your DRS, but you have to be further away than one second from the car behind you to be able to access it. And if, if that was the case, then you could find a way to only advantage one person to go around in the car in front instead of having a, a huge train of people with the exact same situation. I don't want to belabor all of the possible rule changes that I would put in Formula One because they're, they're far too numerous. Oh, I was going to throw out that my my rule change was I want if you cause a yellow during qualifying or a red flag during qualifying, you lose your fast lap. I want the IndyCar qualifying rule. That would be my my one rule change that I would I would bring to Formula 1. I, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. My first thought was remove the the work under red flag so that way you, you have to you can't do whatever you want under red flag, but I think the the qualifying rule would be my first and immediate change. Yeah, that's that's a good one, Molly. I, I do like also having a rethink about the DRS. I think that's good. Maybe using something like you know, IndyCar has with push to pass and you only have a certain amount that you can use during the course of the race is a good one. I do like not allowing teams to be able to change their tires during a red flag because that just eliminates some of the uh, strategic benefits that other teams might have had, right? If they had leveraged something from a strategy standpoint there as well. But I think generally, you know, Formula One is one of those series where we love the innovation. We love all of the things that come from it not being a spec series. So when it comes to the sporting rules and things like that, we can tweak those things. But please, 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 let's stop making things spec and, and trying to make everybody the same car in essence. And let's maintain the innovation. That's what we're here for. That's what makes us really excited. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think there there's so many aspects of the sport that can be tuned and, and modified and adjusted based on things that we learn every season. Uh, I think we're kind of getting towards the end of our questions here, but one final question I was going to ask you, Scarbs, slightly contentious, I know, maybe, is what are your thoughts on potentially having a weight penalty 
for breaching the cost cap, for instance. I, I know there's been some discussion about how effective some penalties are, CFD time, wind tunnel time, and it's sometimes difficult to actually compute how much that will actually hurt a team. Do you have any thoughts potentially on using a, a weight ballast as a penalty for a cost cap infringement, just as a, an idea? I gotta say, I hadn't heard that one. Uh, so I'm kind of thinking on my feet here and out loud. Yeah, I mean, that seems that seems to be a, an option. You know, there's lots of talk about how many te- teams were over the budget uh, for last year. Uh, could be as many as six, according to some reports, which um, may or may not be true. But I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'd still think that the reduction in wind tunnel time is a good threat because every team now would be using the maximum of their available aero testing resource, which hasn't been the case in the past, even with the restrictions. So I think that is still a, a really big punishment. Uh, certainly a weight one would would have an impact. I don't know this, uh, without being able to uh, tell you why, for me, it just doesn't feel like as good or as fair a way of doing things, because I think that would you know, really impact your car performance in a, in a massive way. But it would be a very easy one to apply to the teams. So yeah, I'll have to ponder that one a bit more, but uh, it's certainly an interesting approach. Well, thank you very much for your input. And thank you again for taking the time to come talk to us. We always appreciate that. Maybe you can just tell the listeners where to find you and just to give them a sense of where they can see some of your work. Well, the best place to catch all of my stuff is on Twitter, which tends to be the hub where I talk about all the other stuff I do. So I'm at Scarbs Tech on Twitter, the same on Instagram. And uh, you'll also find me on the F1 TV app presenting Tech Talk, where I'll talk about uh, something technical on the cars in depth uh, at every Grand Prix. And then also in other places like Race Tech Magazine and uh, podcasts everywhere. <laughs> well, again, thanks for taking the time to come talk to us, uh, Dr. Odds or Molly. No, I was just really appreciative of your time, Scarbs. You know, it's been a great second session with you. Hopefully we'll get you back again at some point. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for joining us and always excited to have you. And if you ever want to come chat about OGP Tech, you know how to find me. I will do that. And yeah, equally, uh, thanks for you for inviting me back on. Uh, it's always nice to be invited back. It shows that uh, whatever I did last time, I, I probably did okay. And equally, from my point of view, but equally for all the other F1 Tech fans, thanks for each of you for the work that you do on this podcast, but also through social media and everything else. It's nice that you know the, the F1 Tech community is growing and you've got such enthusiastic and knowledgeable people as you doing the work that you do. So thank you as well. All right. Well, we are nothing if not enthusiastic, so <laughs> we'll take that as a, as a good sign. Thanks again for stopping by. We really appreciate it. That'll do it from us, and we'll see you guys next time. Molly's there. She's I'm muted. muted it's again. fine. Um, <laughs> so it's, we got that out of the way. There's there's the one for the show. No, no. Listen, all, all of us will do it eventually. Every every single person will will orate this incredible oh, yeah. and, and beautiful point, and then just be muted the entire time. It's just a fact. Oh of yeah. Life. Every show has bloopers, so now we got ours, so we can proceed. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs>